No amount of progress can camouflage the most pernicious crisis, though, in our midst. And that's the ultimate manifestation of poverty, homelessness. And that's why I'm devoting today's remark to this crisis. Let's call it what it is. It's a disgrace that the richest state and the richest nation succeeding across so many sectors is falling so far behind to properly house, heal, and humanely treat so many of its own people. Every day, the California dream is, is dimmed by the wrenching reality of families, of children, and seniors living unfed on a concrete bed. Hey y'all, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be talking about uh, lots of cop stuff uh, and lots of homelessness stuff. Um, and then we also have a visit here from our friend, organizer, and fellow activist, Ashley Bennett. Uh, but before we get into all that, how's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. We're uh, obviously ramping right up into uh, the Super Tuesday uh, yeah, primaries. Uh, the Nevada caucuses are going on uh, as we speak with early voting. Uh, in case anyone wants to vote in person in the city or county of Los Angeles, you can go to any of the voting centers starting tomorrow uh, or perhaps today because uh, we're recording on a Friday, but uh, starting Saturday, yeah. February 22nd, you can vote in person. That includes same-day voter registration and voting. So if you're not registered, you can show up and vote. Uh, it'll be like voting provisionally, but your ballot should still get counted. Make sure you get out there. Make sure you vote. Uh, if you have some free time on your hands, this is when we really need you on the ground, knocking doors for progressive candidates. And there are a lot of progressive candidates across California and especially yes, in are. Los Angeles that could really, really, really use your help. Um, things that we won't be covering at the moment, but that you might want to check out, uh, not to not to boost our, not really competitors, because we don't have competitors as a free podcast, but uh, the folks over at LA Podcast <laughs> did a really good deep dive into the sexual assault allegations against David Ryu. Um, which yeah, it was more in-depth than I have heard in a while and actually make it sound a lot worse mm -hmm. than I thought because up until now and up until sort of like reading a lot of the info that's come out about what actually happened, it seemed like a whole lot of nothing burger that was dismissed because there wasn't evidence and it doesn't sound like that was the case. Um, and it makes David Ryu seem a lot shadier and uh, a lot worse than like he lets himself be and kind of like really questions his progressive bona fides if you're being caught in the back of a car with an unconscious woman that you were attempting to maybe have the sex with. So uh, I would encourage you to go listen yeah, to the latest LA gross. podcast episode uh, and get read up to date yep. on that. Uh, but how's your week been going, Chris? There's also a, uh, there's also an Emily Alpert Reyes piece uh, from a few years back when, when this all first that came out. That is the only piece that's uh, been that, published about it. It's the only yeah, piece. Yeah, and you should definitely read that, but also be prepared because it is not a pleasant read. Um, but yeah, the things things are going well here. There's a lot going on. Uh, it's as you mentioned, like we're ramping up to the election, so everything is going crazy. Um, it was really great. I actually got to have my my little brother and his wife were out here visiting me uh, for the weekend, so it was a ton of fun to get to show. LA, it's it's like one of those always inspiring things of getting to show people from out of town around LA and be like, these are all the things I really like about LA. And then you get stuck in traffic and you go, and this is the part of LA that I really hate. Um, but it was a ton of fun. Got to show them some, you know, more unique dining experiences because like they, they yeah, they live in Queens and they get to see some of the most authentic, like 
uh, diverse and rich immigrant cultures and, and foods and all of these things. But at the same time, like LA still has some pretty unique stuff to offer, mm-hmm. uh, specifically like K town. And it's a ton of fun. So it was overall, it was a great, it's been a great week for me so far. Uh, and, uh, then shit got kind of wild this morning. Um, we, uh, saw something going off on Twitter that is really, um, Deeply upsetting. Uh, so let's just go ahead and jump right into things before we get into talking about uh, cops. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to start off with everyone's uh, favorite, uh, least favorite, most cursed <laughs> congressional district. I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, but there's more yeah. more BS going down around the uh, uh, Congressional District 25, which is the northern end of the valley here in Los Angeles. And it has parts of Ventura yeah. as well. It's sort of, you know... Uh, It goes a little bit outside of county lines in L.A. County. Uh, But the Young Turks, which is a a progressive, and I put that in scare quotes, uh, media organization (laughs) here in L.A., uh, is facing a union drive from their staff. And I have to say, as somebody who's, like, looked into working at the Young Turks, I was never really impressed with what their salary or benefits package was. They they paid well below prevailing rates for anyone who wasn't a host. You know, their editors and, like, graphic designers were not making what Mm -hmm. is, like, standard rates, and they always sold that under the, oh, but you're working for the good guys, so it's okay for you to be paid less because that's how business is supposed to work, right, Chris? Like, if you're doing something good in the world, you have to be broke. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely the way that things are prioritized. I mean, they sold us the same stuff at SpaceX uh, when I first started working there. It ended up being fine, but it was definitely like making not nearly as much as everyone who went to work at any of the other A man cannot live on rocket Um, fuel alone. (laughs) <laughs> but Elon's going to try. Um, yeah. So the thing about this all is that the, the, the unionization drive was announced on February 12th with a new Twitter account with a handle of at TYT union uh, announced the unionization of these workers behind the scenes at the young Turks, uh, which is of course, Jenk Uyghurs, Uyghurs uh, media company that came to prominence back in 2015. This morning uh, on Twitter, what we were seeing was on February 21st, the TYT union Twitter account announced that quote, when we announced our decision to go union with IATSE over a week ago, we had hoped the young Turks would respect our choice and voluntarily recognize our union. We are dismayed to report that they had refused. Hashtag TYT live. IATSE then quote, quote tweeted the, the tweet from the TYT union account saying, quote, Today, the Young Turks refused voluntary recognition of the TYT union. This is a disappointing decision from an organization that presents itself as progressive. Join us in telling the Young Turks to respect their so-called principles and respect their workers. Hashtag one you hashtag union strong. And this has uh, been met, frankly, this is some bullshit. Yeah, this has been met by uh, basically TYT hosts because Chank has been pretty silent on this. But the the Young Turks hosts, uh, <laughs> especially Anna Kasparian, have been coming out saying that this is just targeted harassment by IOTC. And IOTC, for those of you who don't know, oh, represents grips and uh, other people who like work in production. Uh, they also represent editors. Um, there is like a a full on editors guild, but IOTC is kind of a catch all for the industry and. They're one of the biggest unions in yeah. Hollywood. Um, you know, the Teamsters are also a big union in Hollywood. But before I get too much into the, the sausage making of 
this all. Uh, the, the argument that the, the hosts are making is that this is just a plot by IOTSE because they're friendlier with Christy Smith, who is running against and most likely going to win the primary. You know, just to give you all some oh, context, like Cenk Wegar has raised around $750,000, most of it from out of state, uh, based on his like uh-huh. fundraising mechanism that exists through the, the Young Turks and his fame through that. He's pulling at 5% and has not endeared himself to anyone in CD25. <laughs> Nobody working on the ground in CD25 CD wants to work with him. Uh, he, doesn't, he didn't bring people from the community onto his campaign. He brought on a whole bunch of uh, liberal and democratic strategists and like consulting firms to basically build a campaign uh, that's a faux campaign. You know, it's not organically constructed or organically built out of people wanting Chank to represent them. It was really Chank just saying, I have a lot of money and I have name recognition. I want to parachute into a campaign and try and win a a, a seat in Congress. Now, this is also, like, this also has a finer point on it because back in 2017, Chank Wegar decided to seek venture capital from people like Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is a big venture capitalist in the media sphere, and took millions upon Uh millions of dollars from very vulture capitalists to build the TYT brand. Ultimately, what he was trying to do was sell a subscription-based model to people on the internet. That did not end up working out, which is one reason that the Young Turks has cut their number of offerings and cut their number of staff. They also haven't been able to get like subsequent rounds of venture capital funding because trying to be MSNBC on YouTube isn't as profitable as they want it to be. Now, there's a lot of like it, one of the other things that's that's interesting here is Christy Smith has a lot more union support than Chank does, and she's much friendlier with unions. Now, there's some arguments to be made as to like how centrist Christy Smith is, and I think that there's some validity to that. At the same time, Christy Smith has a track record of winning elections in CD25. She currently represents them in the California yeah. State Assembly, and so one really has to wonder like. Is this a progressive win when you're attempting to bully someone out of a congressional seat in an area you don't really live in? Like, Cenk Wegar would be running against Harley Ruda down in the South Bay if he was running in his own neighborhood. But Harley Ruda, I guess he thought was too strong to beat or didn't need a progressive challenger, even though Harley Ruda is just as centrist as Christy Smith is. But yeah, so there's a whole tangle of BS here, and it has very little to do with the fact that Chank is running, and has everything to do with the fact that people who are working for the Young Turks want to have a union, and the Young Turks should voluntarily recognize that union, but are refusing to do so because they know that it is going to threaten their ability to get venture capital from really, really crappy capitalists. So this is like sort of mask off time for TYT. Like if TYT was really progressive, They would be a worker-owned co-op. They would be a public benefit corporation. They would not be a privately held corporation where 71% of the shares are owned by Chank Wegar. Like, that is not how you progressively build a business. 100%. Yeah, it's, you know, the worker co-op model does work and can work in media, and I'm really excited. I'm, I'm hoping that Means TV is going to be able to demonstrate that to everybody. Oh, yeah. And be an actual progressive voice in this space, showing that you, know, you don't need to be a multi-billion dollar company like Apple to jump into producing this kind of content and get into the streaming game and provide good quality stuff with a very different 
independent perspective. So and we'll we'll yeah. uh, talk means TV at the end of this episode and let you all know how you can get involved and Hell cost yeah. them some money. And also, like we'll talk about that at the end because I could go on for for a while about that. But before we <laughs> before we completely leave CD twenty five, uh, it turns out that apparently uh, Crash yeah. Override was working for Katie Hill. Uh, Katie Hill, we we all remember, uh, beat Steve Knight in seat no. in uh, council district in sorry yeah. congressional district twenty five to be the first Democrat to hold that seat. I think in in ever mm -hmm. um, because Steve Knight held it for a very long time, and the north end of yeah. the valley is is very red. Uh, now, yes. a person directly connected to her campaign has been arrested for hacking her competitors, including Brian Caforio and Jess Phoenix. And Jess Phoenix, just yeah. to sort of like roll back the clock a little bit, was the person that Ground Game was kind of hoping to throw in with when the uh, when the primary was really going. Jess Phoenix uh -huh. never really got the momentum that Katie Hill got, and Katie Hill's campaign gelled a little bit better. So we ended up working with Katie Hill and helping turn out Porter Ranch to get her elected, and we turned out... Yeah. You know, yeah. 2,000 votes, which is a lot more work than you would think it is for that number of votes. <laughs> but it came ton, out today yeah. that federal so, agents have arrested someone. It's not clear if he was operating on the orders of Katie Hill's campaign or not, but he definitely did work for Katie Hill's campaign in some, in some respects. Absolutely. So this is quoting from the Intercept article that just came out today saying, quote, federal agents have arrested Arthur Dam in connection with a hacking spree that disrupted the 2018 Democratic California primary that ultimately nominated Katie Hill, according to a new criminal complaint. Dam's wife is Kelsey O'Hara, Hill's fundraising during the campaign and her district director after she won office. In Hill's FEC records, she lists a $500 in-kind contribution from DAM on March 25th, 2018 for, quote, graphic design and website security consultation. During the campaign, the website of websites of Hill's opponents, Democrats Brian Cafario and Jess Phoenix, were both attacked, though Hill's never was, raising suspicions at the time that Hill's campaign was behind them. The FBI launched a probe that zeroed in on the Hill campaign in 2019, according to FBI correspondence reviewed by The Intercept. Hill did not immediately respond for comment. So, um, yeah, I, I think the phrase that you used earlier this morning very accurately describes this, this congressional district as being the most cursed of all California congressional districts at this point in time. Um, it's a shit show. I mean, unfortunately, uh, after 2020, we're going to redistrict everything. And so CD25 yeah. will probably be broken <laughs> up into multiple districts because of the number of people who have moved out there and the, the amount the population has grown. But for the time being, like... Yep. Holy shit, CA25, get your shit together. Like this is this uh, is a roller coaster like every 6 weeks some wild. bullshit happens. So wow. Um but yeah, let's uh let's go ahead and move on to some <laughs> other uh really great news for LA. You know, when you think unaffordability in terms of housing, you think uh We're you think number Manhattan, one. you think San Francisco and you're wrong. The most unaffordable yep. place to live and my soon-to-be home starting Monday uh, is Los Angeles. <laughs> so I picked a very good time to move back. But let's, uh, let's talk about this report from HousingWire.com. You absolutely did. So uh, as you just mentioned, HousingWire.com has an article that they published on February 17th announcing that Los Angeles had claimed the top spot in national housing unaffordability. Quote, for the past two years, the least affordable housing market has been San Francisco with a median home price of $908,750. The National Association of Realtors said that California in general is the least affordable place to live in the U.S., citing high home prices. Now, the National Association of Home Builders and Wells Fargo Housing Opportunity Index has given the title of least affordable housing market to Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, Long Beach, Glendale, 
only 11.3% of homes sold during the fourth quarter of 2019 were affordable to families earning the area's median income of $73,100. So, uh, yeah, that's absolutely wild that almost 90% of the homes that were sold in the fourth quarter of 2019 were not affordable for people making 73 grand a year because you got to remember that's the area median income. Half of the people in this area make less than that. And there are a ton of people who are, you know, trying to support families on like 40 grand or less. It's absolutely insane. Prices around here to claiming this top spot from San Francisco is not in That's any way quite an accomplishment. Uh, a good thing for us. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Especially with the, with um, the amount so, of housing that we have built in Los Angeles in the last couple of years. Like, it's yeah. amazing that we have, you know, made the crane the basically the, the, <laughs> nat- the, the city bird of Los Angeles. And yet yeah. home prices continue to go up and up and up and up, almost as though housing prices aren't really tethered to demand. And there are other market forces yeah. driving those sorts of things. And they're also building the wrong type of housing, but you know we digress. So, NAHB, uh, the National Association of Home Builders, their chief economist Robert Dietz blamed the price increase on a sparse inventory of existing homes and a chronic underbuilding of new homes due to what he calls a quote supply side constraints. Um, yeah, basically just complaining about uh, lack of building approval processes from City Hall. I'm sure. Uh, Yamar Charlie, who is the director of a states division at AKG uh, Compass. Beverly Hills told CBS LA that, quote, I'm not surprised. Areas that were affordable now now have been transformed. And if you look at the landscape of Los Angeles, think about all the things we have going on in the next 10 years. We've got a new football stadium, a new soccer stadium that was just built. Lots of infrastructure changes happening downtown. Oh, and this little thing called the Olympics, end quote. Uh, so yeah, let's tie that all together and uh, talk about those no Olympics folks uh, and the uh, the pieces that we were working on uh, what was it last year for the uh, the Rings of Fire. Everyone should go read uh, or rather should listen to those and read all of the things that no Olympics post because they are absolutely right. Um, and just to put a little cherry on top of this, San Francisco has now dropped to number two uh, as far as most unaffordable places to live in the entire U.S. So yeah, good good news. Great great timing to be moving back to LA. Yeah, no, it's gonna be it's gonna be good. I've been I've been saving those pennies. I have I have high hopes. Hooray, Chris. All right. How do you want to do the bumper on this one? Can you hear me? Okay, sorry. No, no worries. My AirPod was glitching out on the air. All right, lead us to the bumper. Uh, oh yeah yeah yeah. All right, so uh. No, don't worry, though. Like, once you are ensconced in your totally unaffordable house, you can totally count on the police absolutely 100% obeying the law all the time. Right, Chris? Uh, no. Ah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, back on February 13th, Vice News just reported that, quote, a major audit found that California cops shared data on the movements of millions of drivers without having policies in place disregarding state law, end quote. So what they're talking about are these things that you've most likely seen. Uh, These are the cameras that are used for collecting uh, license plate information. So these are the cameras that are mounted like on the trunks of squad cars uh, or up on the roof next to the light bar or on the back of the parking enforcement vehicles. Uh, I actually just saw one this past weekend that was like this crazy Christmas tree thing. It looked like somebody had taken one of those uh, vertical bike racks that you see uh, attached to like a trailer hitch and just mounted like eight cameras hanging off the sides of it, uh, pointing at all of these crazy angles to record 
all of the license plates and, you know, take note of where you're parked and when so they can come back and author and, you know, issue a citation for you. Um, so when it comes to like actually recognizing and, and knowing what these pieces of technologies are, uh, I'd recommend an in-depth background piece that was published by the Electronic Freedom Foundation in 2017, this article that's entitled, quote, The Four Flavors of Automatic License Plate Reader Technology. Um, we've got a link to that over in the show notes. So now back to the issue at hand here for California law enforcement agencies. They're claiming that these automatic license plate readers are absolutely necessary for basic law and parking enforcement. And they're touting the efficacy of these tools in uh, child abduction and other high-profile investigations. But Vice is reporting that many of the 230 police and sheriff's departments in the state who are currently using these automatic license plate readers are out of compliance with a 2016 state law that required law enforcement agencies to create and follow documented procedures for handling this information to ensure privacy. The Vice article is reporting that, quote, the Los Angeles Police Department has collected more than 320 million images over the last several years. Only 400,000 of those generated immediate matches to cars of interest, but the remaining 99.9% .9 of the images, which can be used to track people's movements across the city, mm -hmm. stay stored in a department database for more than five years, according to the audit. The LAPD then adds other sensitive information to that database, sometimes tagging the photos with criminal records, names, addresses, and dates of birth. Meanwhile, the department has not established any written policy governing proper use of its ALPR, that's Automatic License Plate Reader, data in violation of a 2016 state law, end quote. Um, so, yeah, whoa. Uh, yeah, Senator Scott Wiener, uh, who is the one that requested this audit, told Motherboard that, quote, this is very troubling. The technology reportedly exists to help with parking enforcement and other basic law enforcement responsibilities, and yet we're seeing a huge amount of data collected, retained, and shared unnecessarily, end quote. And this has been um, a problem not just here in Los Angeles. Uh, Boston has had uh, some investigations into over. it because the ARP yeah. stuff is generally collected with proprietary technology that's owned by third parties and that those third parties maintain yeah. these databases and may have the ability to sell and or use that data outside of the oversight of law enforcement. Like, dun, dun, dun. it's this weird public-private partnership where the police collect the data, but the database, the data warehouse that's actually where that data lives is owned by a private company. And that private company is not beholden to the same laws, regulations, and restrictions that a police department is. And it's really kind of amazing that a tech-savvy state like California has not gotten ahead of this. Like, it's one of those things where, you know, it... I want to see, you know, I don't want to attribute to malfeasance <laughs> something that can be attributed to incompetence, but the LAPD's explanation on why it's taken them four <sighs> years to write this policy doesn't really seem like incompetence. It seems like the other one. It yeah, so uh, the LAPD is saying that they're planning on finalizing their automatic license plate reader procedures in April this year, and they released a brief statement on the audit findings saying, quote, the LAPD will perform an assessment of the system's data security features and retention periods for ALPR images to evaluate the need for adjustment prior to publishing of the ALPR policy. Furthermore, the policy will list the, the entities the department shares ALPR images with and the process for handling image sharing requests, end quote. So something else that is like immediately comes to my mind when we're talking about something like this particular story is a really great piece that they did in the New York Times podcast this past week talking about facial recognition software. It is a truly spooky dive into 
a, uh, a basically a tech startup that has been just bulk collecting all of the data that was ever put on Facebook and made publicly available through from like image trawlers and, and everything. And funded They've, by Peter Thiel. Like, let's not let's not leave yep, that detail exactly. out. No, definitely. Um, and it's just absolutely wild. Apparently, we are now all able to be facially recognized with like 99% accuracy. It's super spooky. The, the reporter who was doing this reporting, uh, she tried to get them to run like a search history on her. And every time that she asked people to do it, it always came up with no results. Turns out there were some pretty nefarious reasons for that. And it's don't want to spoil the whole thing to you, but basically holy shit tech bros are creepy sometimes um yeah so getting back to this one uh the vice reporting on this particular topic is also highlighting how frequently and apparently careless uh these types of agencies are with sharing of this information uh quote in addition to lapd the auditors examined three other agencies in detail the fresno police department the marin county sheriff's office and sacramento county sheriff's office the sacramento sheriff's office shared its data with 1119 entities fresno with 982 and Marin with 554 around the country. LAPD shared data with 58 departments in California and Honolulu for some reason. Well, and it, uh, which, sorry. <laughs> wait, how are you getting cars from LA to Honolulu on like a regular basis? But I digress. <laughs> well, and it's, it's also one where you have to remember that not every police department has the same uh, policies when it comes to cooperating with federal immigration authorities. And so that raises another question. Oh, because yeah. if you're able to track someone's movements reliably across the oh, city, really and dark. even if your department doesn't necessarily share information with ICE, but you share information with a yep. department that does share information with ICE, yep. then it makes it much easier for ICE to go in and oh. find people that they're looking for. Uh, and just as a note, we'll, we'll plug uh, LAPD spying at the end. So the, let's talk about what ICE is doing because ICE has announced, uh, just after the impeachment uh, you know, failed, surprisingly, ICE has announced that they are going to be <laughs> sweeping into cities with essentially their really badass SWAT teams who are meant to bust like narco traffickers. So they're going to be yeah. like busting down doors of businesses and arresting the janitors who are like cleaning up after your day because that's really a level of response that seems proportionate to the threat of people earning a paycheck. Yeah, so this uh, something that people might have seen on Twitter about this before this reporting really came out was uh, the deployment of basically tanks in, I think it was in Queens for like an immigration enforcement operation, Yeah, which is absolutely wild uh, and insane dystopic future that we are apparently now living in. So the New York Times reported on Friday last week that the, quote, the Trump administration is deploying law enforcement tactical units from the southern border as part of a supercharged arrest operation in sanctuary cities across the country. An escalation in the president's battle against localities that refuse to participate in immigration enforcement, end quote. So Customs and Border Protection spokesman Lawrence Payne confirmed to The New York Times that the agency was deploying 100 officers to work with ICE quote, in order to enhance the integrity of the immigration system, protect public safety, and strengthen our national security, end quote. Uh, it's worth noting here that this is a particularly significant move as CBP normally only operates within a 100-mile border zone, while ICE uh, works all over the country, everywhere in between. So a little bit more from the New York Times article, quote, 
among the agents being deployed to sanctuary cities are members of the elite tactical elite tactical unit known as Bortac, which acts essentially as the SWAT team of the Border Patrol. With additional gear such as stun grenades and enhanced special forces type training, including sniper certification, the officers typically conduct high-risk operations targeting individuals who are known to be violent, many of them with extensive criminal records, end quote. So this is a massive escalation of like the types of tactics being used to further criminalize folks for being undocumented. Uh, and it's just absolutely insane to be seeing this happening. Yep. And it, it also ties into uh, these escalations that we're seeing in California, where ICE has decided that they are just ignoring California state law uh, and arresting people at courthouses. And apparently something went down uh, just uh, last yeah. week uh, yeah, where KTLA reported that U.S. immigration agents arrested two people at a Northern California courthouse, including a man detained in a hallway, like on his way to a hearing, uh, despite the fact that the state of California has said, no, don't do that. ICE has, Correct. I guess, said that... Um, they don't care because federal law supersedes state law, but at the same time, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, we're gonna see how this all plays out. This was taking place up in Sonoma County in their superior court. Uh, their district attorney, Jill Ravitch, the public defender, Kathleen Pazzi, and of course, the San Francisco district attorney, Chesa Boudin, uh, all condemned these arrests. Um, the so this the what was it AB fifty four or is it SB fifty four? I believe it's AB. Um, this law means that law enforcement uh, agencies within the state of California are not allowed to participate in federal immigration enforcement, and this really does seem like it's now ICE trying to push the limits of what they're able to get away with, and now it's going to end up being up to like. Uh, Javier Becerra probably well, to determine whether or not to try to bring some kind of a lawsuit. Well, it's it's, uh, well, SB, it's unclear. SB fifty four is the California Values Act, which yeah. is the law you're talking about. And Javier Becerra has been engaged in pretty constant litigation since it was passed because the federal government immediately sued California over it, saying you can't tell your local police officers what they can and cannot do when we're demanding data. Uh, and again, you know it. The way that the, the Constitution of the United States is structured says that federal law supersedes local law all the time, like state law and local law all the time. So it's hard to understand, to see like a good point of resistance other than, you know, just voting these people out. And it's another reason why we need to get the Trump administration out in this next election. Like if you think that they're brazen now after they survived impeachment, if they win the next uh, yeah. election and the voters conclusively it's, tell them, we will never yeah. hold you accountable for anything that you do because you're able to win in this stupid, broken electoral college system that we have, like all bets are off. You know, on, on uh, yeah. just today it was announced that the federal government is going to start punishing people who entered the country legally but aren't making enough money. So if you've ever needed to use food stamps or rely on public assistance for anything, be it for rent, uh, be it for uh, getting an education, and you have a green card, you are now going to basically be told by the federal government that you can no longer have access to any kind of public help, and they'll probably be revoking your green card. And this stuff is just going to escalate. Uh. So when the people in power say, oh, we only care about illegal immigration, we want to see legal immigrants welcomed, they're fucking lying. They're literally just trying yeah, to build are. an ethno state, and they're trying to build an ethno state that is still going to have a foundation of people who 
were not born in this country, who are not provided the same protections as those of us that have citizenship, and will be exploited to their death to make sure that our economic engine keeps running. Because ultimately, that's what it's about. You know, the reason why the Koch brothers are pro-immigration isn't because they're warm, fuzzy people who love people who weren't born in the U.S. It's because they know that's where the cheap labor is that they can exploit, and that's where the people who are too afraid and too uneducated to form a union or fight back against those kind of employment practices are. So... This is a whole bunch of terrible shit, and it seems like LAPD <laughs> yeah, is really complicit is. in driving this authoritarian engine forward, uh, which should come as a surprise to no one who has ever met an LAPD officer. But yep. let's talk about more failures of the state. Uh, so <laughs> the housing crisis oh, God, has been you know, identified by pretty much everyone in this election as the most important issue in California on a local level, on a yeah. state level. And it's beginning to be seen as that on a national level. Big shout out to Bernie for talking about gentrification and the fact oh, that like yeah. the rents are too damn high all the way across the country. Uh, but we're going to swing down south to San Diego and talk about their audit of their outreach to encampments and stuff. And keep, you know, as we're going through this, keep in mind that like almost every single one of these criticisms also applies to LASA. And these are failures not Absolutely. of the people working on the ground as like LASA caseworkers, but a criticism of the bureaucrats and the elected city council members who have failed to build an accountable working system. Absolutely. So just for a little bit more context on this, Governor Newsom actually uh, announced he, he did his state of the state address uh, just recently, and he said that the growing homeless population was, quote, the most pernicious crisis in our midst during this is this is his second state of the state address back on Wednesday. Uh, and it's just, yeah, OK, cool. So do something about it. Um but part of the problem is that when people He's going to get Mark Ridley Thomas on the case, Chris. It. He's going to get MRT <laughs> on it. They're totally, no! totally going to fix it. I believe in Newsom. <laughs> I believe in the Gavinator. Oh, shit. Okay, so on Wednesday this past week, uh, KUSI was reporting on the release of the San Diego City Council's Audit Committee report back on the city's efforts to address homelessness down south. So the report showed that these efforts uh, have been slowed by a scattered strategic plan and a lack of outreach. The San Diego City Auditor's report reads, quote, in many cases, successful outreach requires significant time and effort to build relationships, trust, and rapport with homeless individuals who may be distrusting of the system. Can't imagine why. Although the city's homeless outreach efforts have recently improved and continue to evolve, we found that the city lacks a comprehensive outreach strategy and that there is currently no regional system in place to lead homeless outreach, end quote. So uh, that could literally be said of exactly what's going on in L.A. County, where the problem is much, much worse because we are much, much bigger. Um, apparently, the sweeps down there in San Diego are referred to as abatement. Uh, and KUSI reported something that activists in L.A. have been saying for years now. Quote, clearing out an encampment without offering information and resources was shuffling the, the problem to a different part of the city rather than truly addressing it. End quote. You think? I mean, yeah, that's that's it's it's whack-a-mole and it's cruel and they need to stop doing it because we do it here, too. Uh, the auditor's report continues, quote, Thus, homeless individuals may simply be displaced to another location that will then also require abatement, resulting in a repetitive and costly cycle of abatement and inefficient use of city resources. Frequent displacement without effective outreach may also impact homeless individuals' ability to successfully resolve their homelessness, end quote. Um, so, I, I mean, this is literally what we have been saying uh, 
with you know alongside all of our members uh, all of our coalition members in the services not sweeps coalition like this is the point sweeps do not work they only make it harder for people to be able to get themselves out of their situation and into housing into a secure future and the city is not doing anything down in san diego or up here in la to meaningfully address this yep so ksi concludes their piece stating that quote the report offers a dozen recommendations to narrow these gaps, including developing strategies to fund needs in the city's strategic plan and a comprehensive outreach strategy. Other recommendations include monitoring to ensure accountability, transparency, and effectiveness, and developing an encampment abatement protocol to ensure person-centered outreach. Uh, so this is something that we also like, do, just genuinely do not have. There, there is no unified protocol for how our city's multiple agencies that interact with our homeless population, uh, we don't have any kind of like written protocol for what they're supposed to be doing. It's like this completely ad hoc system that has just developed organically in the worst possible way of all these people trying to like be like, no, it's not our problem. It's your problem. No, it's not our problem. It's your problem. And like, this is why Lhasa exists in this weird no man's land between the city and the county because nobody actually wants to take responsibility for addressing this problem. And as a result, everyone just kind of half asses it and then points their fingers at the other guys and says, no, it's their fault. Or when we so, do come up with a comprehensive, like planned approach to this stuff, yeah. the city council gives it all of four weeks and change before Three they weeks. say, oh, it's not working. You didn't solve homelessness in literally a month. We need to throw out this entire plan that we've spent years developing. You know, I like we we've known what the solutions are for a very long time. We've passed all of the bills that we need to pass to like fund housing. We've passed uh, Triple H and H and JJJ, yeah. and we have thrown money yeah. at the at our elected officials saying, "Hey, solve this problem," and they have been unable to do it because it's not in their interest. We also have elected officials who are in charge of unwieldy districts that are too large that are devoted yep. to the needs of developers over the people who are living in Echo Park who also don't spend any yep. time talking to the people who actually live on the street. You know, when Eric Garcetti or when Mitch O'Farrell go to a public event, they have LA Sanitation clear out the homeless people so they don't have to see them when they get out of their chauffeured SUV and walk into the event. Like, if you are constantly making yourself blind, deaf, and dumb, of course you're never going to know what the solutions to the problems are because you're not actually seeing the problems ah yep. it's so dumb but let's also yep. so mitch yep. mitch like is a particular point of of anger for me at the moment because he keeps talking out of both sides of his mouth and he's made some promises and done some okay stuff like he secured a half million dollars for hygiene facilities for echo park lake and then he goes and does something incredibly terrible like what we're both just about what we're about to talk about so one of the big problems at living in an encampment is you don't have access to, like, a place to go to the restroom. Echo Park has permanently installed restrooms, but they're not open 24 hours yeah. a day. Mitch O'Farrell said he was going to open them 24 hours a day. But then what happened, Chris? Yep. Well, on Thursday this week, Streetwatch LA tweeted that, quote, Echo Park resident sent Mincho Farrell a letter and emails to request a meeting to work with him on solutions. His response? He sent a guard with a gun and baton and locked the Northwest bathrooms at night. This coming from someone who claims to be a champion of gun control. Hashtag Wicked Mitch. So what happened is that these bathrooms were available to folks, and then they started locking them up and adding an armed security guard to protect the bathrooms um, from homeless individuals. Like... 
I mean, my my mind is just boggled at the well, and it, it's also the complete incompetence of this response. Well, and it's also if you live around Echo Park Lake and like you want to go to the lake late at night and like use the restroom, you used to be able to. Now you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Like now they've locked it, not it's just locked. for the people who are living in the park, <laughs> but for people who Mitch considers like his actual constituents. And it's it's Absolutely. something that kind of brings us back to the whole fiasco with the the bathrooms on Skid Row. They put in nine bathrooms on Skid Row. They closed them ninety days later because they're like, oh, it became a haven for for drugs and and <sighs> prostitution, and like there was no way for us to like take care of it. And it's like the city didn't invest the resources or try and come up with strategies to do that. It also becomes a question where you're yeah. like, hey, the people who are living in this encampment, many of whom like would like to have work or would like to get like a step up in this world and begin to like rebuild yeah. their lives and try and work towards like renting an apartment or having some stability. Why can't they be hired to monitor the bathrooms at night? Like if you're that worried about you it think? and you also want to provide innovative <laughs> solutions for the people in the park, it seems like both of those, like the people who are living there are already invested in the community that they've built. Like the, the 60 people who are living in Echo Park have a community. They have a family. They they yeah. want their, their park, they want their community to be safe and to be clean and to be taken care of. Why you wouldn't utilize that and leverage that to meet these needs is just mind-boggling, but it shows that like when you're a witch guy in power, your solutions to every problem are men with guns. And yeah, wondering why. And, and on top of that, it's it's also it's a gun. It's a guy with a gun that's not even there all the time that they're supposed to be there. Like there, I've seen multiple videos coming out from residents of that encampment saying, like, "Look, these bathrooms are locked. This rent-a-cop is nowhere to be seen. We cannot use them." So Mitch, even when he's making these promises of doing something that's like a half step compared to what's actually being demanded of him. Even then, he's failing to deliver on it. They're, these are not available to folks. They are just routinely having no security personnel around at all, and they're just leaving them locked so that nobody has access to well, it. And it, it also, and it's just, it, it feeds directly <sighs> into this myth of people being service resistant. And it's like if you yeah. had to, like, imagine if you needed to use a restroom and you always had to be to uh, be encountering a guy with a gun, like looking you up and down, evaluating you it as a threat, someone who had some literally issues. deadly force strapped to his hip, you would probably yeah. not want to use those services. And yet every single time the city talks about offering services, they're sending LAPD, they're sending armed guards, they're sending people who make you feel unwelcome and unsafe, and then be like, well, these people just clearly don't want help. And it's like, I'm a, you know, even if I'm a law-abiding citizen, I don't want to have to walk by a guy with a gun to take a dump. Like, are you no. kidding me? That's incredibly yeah. unwelcoming. That's incredibly that unsafe. But this is all just part of a massive, massive chain of failures at the bureaucratic and the institutional level. And we're going to get into that a little bit more now with Ashley Bennett, organizer from Ground Game Los Angeles and a former caseworker for LASA. And to uh, talk about what's going on at Echo Park Lake and specifically like what we as ground game and also as power trying to do to, to do more organizing and also empower the people who are living in the park to like advocate for themselves better. We have Ashley uh, Bennett here. She's an organizer with ground game Los Angeles and also with power. And she formerly worked for LASA. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, what happened with you at LASA in the context of echo park Lake and kind of the resistance that's been forming there. Uh, so, first of all, thank you all so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, but let's just dive right in with what ha happened to Echo Park Lake. Start at kind of the beginning. Um, so I was a member of the Access and Engagement uh, 
otherwise known as the Outreach Department of LASA, for about eight months. Uh, so we are the team that is going out into encampments every day, trying to connect folks to services, uh, overseeing the Care Care Plus operations, so the cleanups, uh, advocating for our folks, and just really kind of being at the ground level of you know trying to solve the homelessness crisis. Um, I absolutely adored and loved my job. Uh, working with our unhoused brothers and sisters is my passion and my joy. Uh, just because a little bit about me, like I experienced homelessness as homelessness as a child, um, and was in and out, in and out of. Um, you know, a vehicle with my mother due to a domestic violence situation from like the very beginning of my life. Uh, so my whole life's work has been to um, make sure that we are lifting these folks up um, because I know what it feels like to be abandoned and hopeless. Mm -hmm. um, but so going into what happened with Echo Park, uh, it was one of my areas that I um, was assigned to with my team at LASA to conduct outreach in. So that began in about November when we had pop-up shelters that came during the rains and uh, the Thanksgiving weekend. So that was actually right about the time of the Care Care Plus rollout, right? It was. It was around the same time, yes. So um, I ran the Echo Park Community Center shelter for the Thanksgiving weekend. It was chaotic, um, but it was so wonderfully run. We had so many people there. Uh, it was it was an awesome program, and it really showed how, uh, you know, if you have the right staff and the right kind of programming for a shelter, people really can benefit from um, having that kind of a system, even if it is, you know, dormitory style, um, if you have the right people running it. But I, that's how I was introduced to a lot of the clients that I ended up working with for months at Echo Park Lake. Um, so what ended up happening after the pop-up shelters is that we got um, a notification on, uh, I believe it was the Friday of the Thanksgiving weekend, that we were to dismiss everyone the next morning, uh, essentially sending all of our folks who had sought shelter in um, that location, and our locations across Los Angeles County, uh, back out onto the streets, which was something I was absolutely not willing to do. For a little bit of context, that was like, what, a couple of days before the winter shelter program actually would start operating, right? Exactly, And yes. it was like in the middle of torrential rain and downpours torrential and cold downpour. weather. It was awful. Yep. It was, it, it was mortifying and making that ask of folks who are on the front lines and really care about the, our unhoused brothers and sisters was absolutely absurd to me. So, um, when we got the word from the head of our department at that point that we would were going to be having to dismiss people until the winter shelters opened, like 48 hours later, the Monday is when they were slated to open. Uh, that's kind of the first time that I got into a battle with, you know, the powers that be at LASA. And, a good battle to have, yeah. Uh, yes. And basically said, you know, like, I'm absolutely not putting these people back out onto the street. If we have to have a direct action, we will. You can, you know threaten to take away my job, but like we have people here that are willing to stay and take care of these folks and let them stay here until winter shelters are actually open. So that ended up working out um, because Mike Botnan came to the rescue. Uh, we got in contact with him, organized with a lot of different organizations and really put the pressure on LASA and service providers to open one mass um, early winter shelter in Athens Park. Um, however, although our folks got bussed there and got to stay there for the rest of the weekend until winter shelters opened. Uh, as soon as winter shelters opened, they got taken right back to the Echo Park Community Center. Uh, and a lot of them ended up right back at the lake. So we had about 53 people staying with us at the community center who wanted to stay indoors. Uh, they, the program that they were running at Athens uh, 
I mean, it wasn't like the program that we were running. They said they said that it felt more prison-like, and they felt more comfortable sleeping, you know, outdoors at the park in that community, um, and having that kind of freedom to, you know, uh, and being in that part of town. Um, aside from like staying so far down in South LA. Um, so after that happened, uh, my team continued to work with the folks at Echo Park Lake and really got to know this amazing dynamic community. Not to say that, you know, a lot of the encampments in this area aren't like amazing and dynamic, but this place is really special. Like the people that we have there, are various age, age ranges, uh, a lot of young people, but all just very driven, very artistic. A lot of them have work. A lot of them have just been down on their luck and ended up uh, on the streets for you know one reason or another, but really are trying to get their lives back on track. But there are just absolutely no resources within CD13 to offer them. And we worked from that point in November to, you know, the last few months in trying to get all of these folks into housing programs and on wait lists and into shelters. And it has not worked out just because shelter beds, the shelters that are actually helping people transition into more permanent situations and get their lives back on track are absolutely at capacity. And uh, within CD13, there's there's no availability whatsoever for shelter beds. And there's like no real supply of permanent supportive housing, which is the most effective tool for getting people you know, further in their into the uh, you know road to becoming fully self-sustained and housed, right? Like the the shelter beds are a, a, are basically an emergency measure that get people into the barest like modicum of security and you know warm place to sleep. Exactly. Yes. I mean, the, the whole principle behind shelter beds and bridge housing is that that's kind of a short term transitionary period for folks. You know, they can get the services that they need. You know, if they want to detox, they can. If they want to start doing a job search, they can. They can save their money by their time. But the ultimate goal, in theory, is always to transition those folks. And 90 days for bridge housing is is like the, what the is th theoretically supposed to be happening. Uh, as the set date for transitioning into permanent supportive housing. But we haven't seen any of that happening. Honestly, the only permanent supportive housing placements that I've had are for two families. Um, and those were the two last family spots that were available for months. Um, so it, that was, I, my uh, areas were service planning area four and service planning area five, and I can only speak for my team. Uh, but we were the highest performing team uh, over the last six months at LASA for those areas. Um, so from that point, uh, things at Echo Park started escalating right at the turn of the year. Uh, we have this amazing community who really cherishes the park, uh, has created a family there. A lot of them, you know, come from just so many different situations. Uh, I can't even get into like all the different things, like families that have turned them away, uh, just falling down on their luck, getting evicted uh, unlawfully, uh, just falling on some hard times. Um, but we... <laughs> Are, are trying to get their things together, but they started uh, feeling the pressure and the terror and harassment from law enforcement officials and city agents uh, and park rangers right after the turn of the year. They started getting notifications that they were going to have to vacate the park uh, because of 6344, um, stating that you cannot pitch tents in the park. The park has a um, no camping, uh, law, I so guess. That's, that's Los Angeles to, Municipal Code 6344. 44, yes. Um, so we had this influx of uh, a law enforcement coming in, sanitation coming in, and 
just running operations that were not going through LASA or any, uh, you know, overarching homeless service uh, authority, uh, which would be like the UHRC for cleanups and things like that. Uh, there were operations that I was informed of, you know, through January and February where other service providers would call me and just be like, hey, can you please like send a team out here? We have park rangers literally breaking down people's tents and throwing them away and people are freaked out and crying and like, we don't know what to do. They don't have anywhere to go and they want to get them out of the park. So it escalated from a situation like that was just like, hey, everyone's just living peacefully in the park to these people are being victimized and terrorized every single day just for living peacefully in the park when they have nowhere else to go. So the, these were, basically these were sweeps that were being orchestrated without any real involvement from LASA that were just being put out by like park rangers or where 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 was this coming from? Yes, so uh, uh, Recreation and Parks Department actually does gotcha. have jurisdiction over parks okay. uh, in you know, Los Angeles. So it actually did not have to go through the uh, UHRC or Care and Care Plus guidelines. And UHRC, what does that stand for? Uh, United Homelessness Response awesome. Center. Yes. So um, didn't have to go through them. However, when I first got on the ground, I, I believe it was in early January when uh, one of these uh, unauthorized sweeps was happening, when people think where people's things were being thrown away, um, I interacted with one of the head park rangers and said, "Hey, I'm with Lassa. I'm working with you know the 60 plus people who are living at this park right now. This is a human rights violation. You throwing away people's basic survival needs because they don't have anywhere to go, and you taking away their tents, their blankets, their foods, their per personal documents. Uh, that that's unacceptable. So I was able to halt an operation uh, in early January and get the UHRC and um, sanitation involved just so it could kind of go more by the book than what they initially. Uh, we're planning and uh, carrying out, but the, since then they have just continued to target the park week after week uh, with actual scheduled sweeps, um, threatened threats of eviction, um, and it, it, it's unacceptable. But just because there are no uh, real alternatives for folks to seek refuge in in that area, right. so this all so, took like a massive turn for the worse not too long ago when there was, uh, it was basically what, a, a posted eviction notice the saying like, all of your tents are gonna be, you have to take everything down and you have to be cleared out of the park for a full week? Full week, yes. So that was, so that was all around a film that, shoot, right? That was, yes. So uh, the turning point of everything was when uh, notices, notices for cleanups are usually one day notices. Yeah. Like we inform folks that they should just vacate the area for 24 hours city, if, it's, right. if it's an intensive cleanup. Yeah. Just if you don't want to be bothered, move all your things to a safe zone, just be out of the area. This was something different, something that we had not seen before uh, on, with my team at LASA. It was a seven day eviction notice. That's so and crazy. I got a call from this, the same parks, uh, park ranger who, um, I initially had stopped the sweep where people's things were being like destroyed and thrown away right in front of them. Uh, and he said that, yeah, it's a film shoot, but we do fully plan on enforcing 6344 after the film shoot uh, commences. And we're not going to let folks sleep here anymore. They're going to have to figure something else out. And he kept saying that, you know, Lassa has the answer, like, there's shelter beds available. Like you guys have to figure this out yourselves. We're gonna have a meeting with Mitch O'Farrell's office, and this, this, and this is planned. Like I just, this is my jurisdiction, and wow. these people can't stay here anymore. Um, 
I was just like, man, we really just, we don't have any other options. These people are living in a peaceful society, helping you keep the park clean, and we don't have any alternative. Yeah, there's like, nowhere for them to go. There's for them to go. Um, so uh, what that led to is that community at Echo Park really coming together and trying to figure out what an action plan could be. And what they decided upon was that they wanted to um, peacefully and graciously petition their council member as constituents, because most of them have lived in Los Angeles for a good portion of their lives. And this, we're talking about 60 residents that are living in the park right now, came together and drafted a beautiful letter just asking Mitch O'Farrell to hear their stories, take a seat with them, consider letting them stay in the park uh, under a neighborhood contract if they helped keep keep it clean. They actually drafted a neighborhood contract saying, hey, if we're able to maintain residency in this park uh, whilst you know shelters and permanent supportive housing solutions are being built, we will clean the bathrooms, we will mow the lawns, we will take part in beautification projects, we will run programs, uh, we will make sure that this mm -hmm. park is you know, more beautiful and better than it ever has been. And, you know, in return, what they wanted was to stop being harassed. They wanted uh, PD to stop paying them visits at two and three o'clock in the morning and knocking on their tents and telling them that they would be evicted the next morning and getting those threats every single day because it's already hard to live out on the streets and struggle for survival every single day and worry about where you're going to get water and food. Uh, add on to that, you know, being threatened by law enforcement and the powers that be to be displaced from your community and your family. And it's just, it's a terrible situation. So they really offered this as an olive branch to Mitch O'Farrell and really wanted to come to the table, have a seat at the table and start developing a solution. Um, that letter- How did that letter go down? <laughs> that letter came out and was released to Mitch's office uh -huh. on a Thursday. And Friday, um, we had so many beautiful, amazing community groups and housed residents in the area come out in support of this letter because they know the community there. They know that they're trustworthy. They know that they don't have anywhere to go and they support them staying there. Um, so it ended up being a huge action. A cleanup was scheduled for that Friday and our demands for letting the cleanup take place were that we wanted Mitch to go on the record and say that he would actually have a discussion for folk with folks about developing a plan for permanent supportive housing and at least hear them out about staying in the park uh, in the interim. And um, that we wanted the guarantee that if they did clear out the park for the comprehensive cleanup, meaning they had to move everything out of the park, that they would be able to return to the park that evening. We couldn't get those assurances um, until much later in the day. <clears throat> and um, ultimately, the uh, residents in the camp, who are awesome, um, were able to come to an agreement with one of the LAPD um, captains, and they were given the assurance that they would be able to at least stay there for the next 24 hours. So that was at least a little bit of a win. However, that was not, we, we didn't receive uh, the response that we needed from Mitch O'Farrell. We didn't receive any response at all, really. Um, it was ignored. Uh, it was met with inaction. And it's it was absolutely blasphemous. You know, these are someone's constituents. There's 60 people rallying together and we, we had upwards of, you know, a hundred people all together there protesting in the park on that Friday saying, Hey, can you please just meet with our folks here and like, let's come up with a solution together. And that was met with silence and inaction. So, um, the action that was actually taken by 
Mitch O'Farrell's office. And this is, none of this can be on the record because these are all like phone calls that I guess were placed behind closed doors. Like, at- So there's no like, there's no traceability when it comes to CPRA, California Public Records Access requests? As far and- as we've known, no, uh, there has not been. Gotcha. But uh, on the day of the protest, I was yeah. there as a civilian, not as a representative of Lhasa in any way, shape, or form, uh, exercising my right to protest peacefully and stand with the people who I am fighting for at, at Echo Park, you know, as yeah. a community organizer with Ground Game LA. Yeah. And, um, I was asked by the director, interim director of access and engagement, because he actually did come down to the park, which I thought was a beautiful thing to try to, you know, de-escalate the situation and maybe broker a deal if Mitch was willing to talk. Um, he asked me to leave because he was worried that uh, the powers that be may really not like the fact that I, as a LASA employee, even though I was not there in an official capacity yeah. with LASA, would recognize me and that there would be disciplinary action um, taken because of my presence at this this protest that I helped organize. That's wild. Um, which was really disappointing, but I respected those orders. You know, I tried to tread the lines of activism and the rules of that job like as gracefully as possible. So I did. The protests continued on and, you know, our folks were allowed to stay. Uh, Went through the weekend. They did have a few uh, PD visits, uh, but ultimately the no evictions happened, so that was good. There so was, it was a, a successful little bit of a action, kick. right? Successful action, yeah. absolutely. First steps were successful. Um, the one thing that we did receive from Mitch's office was an email from one of his staffers uh, addressed to the four uh, individuals in the encampment who actually gave their personal testimonials, uh, saying that. Uh, give them their loss of caseworker phone number and information and uh, they would set up a meeting with the loss of caseworker which was myself and those four individuals and whoever else wanted to have a discussion um, on monday of the following week i was brought into um, leadership at Loss's office and told by one of my trusted superiors that there had been a call placed to our interim executive director uh, at Lhasa uh, by Mitch O'Farrell uh, saying that uh, a Lhasa employee who was also a uh, member of Ground Game <laughs> was instigating anarchy in the park oh. and interfering with cleanup activities and they went as far as to say that I had gotten the position solely to stop the cleanup activities, the LA sanitation, and you know. So they were alleging that you were our mole on the um, inside. Yes, I, I guess wow. that that was the story, um, which is absolutely and utterly absurd. Because I love this work. I'm going to continue to do this work. It's about the people. It's not yeah. about anything like that. But uh, on that Monday, I received resounding support from the folks at Lhasa. They they were like, we appreciate what you did. Um, but here's the situation. Mitch O'Farrell is the head of the Homelessness and Poverty Committee. He has a lot of sway over our budget. Gotcha. Uh, he has a lot of sway over what happens hold to on, this. Hold on just a second. Well, <laughs> we've got some, I don't know if you can hear that in the background, Tim, but there's a ton of fire trucks. <laughs> well, they should be, all right, they're cleared out now. So go back to talking about um, the support that you received from the folks at LASA. And, yes. Yeah. So they said that they appreciated the work that was being done. And, you know, personally, they supported it wholeheartedly. 
Uh, however, because Mitch is the head of the Homelessness and Poverty Committee, he does hold a lot of sway and power over the uh, budget that LASA operates under, especially for the outreach department. So if push came to shove, the actual words like termination weren't used, but like it was implied there was some disciplinary action that was requested from that phone call. Um, and I was very, very appreciative of uh, being briefed on that information, but none of the leadership staff at that point thought that it would actually result in a termination. At that point, it was just going to be an investigatory meeting because we are unionized, so I was supposed to be able to have a representative, and what they thought it would be at that point was just a conversation, you know, some guidelines, like please don't do this again, you're recognizing this area, and taking away my ability to work the cases that I was working in CD13 uh, to appease Mitch. Unfortunately, a week later, uh, I came into the office, on, so that, happened, that discussion happened on the Monday right after the action. Exactly a week later, uh, I was asked to stay back at the office. We, our start time is uh, 6 a.m. Um, so I was asked by my supervisor to stay back, and I was like, oh no. So I guess this thing is happening today. Um, and by union rules, you're supposed to be given at least 48 hours notice, and uh, my union representative, who had already been, you know, briefed on the situation by, you know, colleagues and uh, I'd been in contact with, uh, was not aware that this was happening, but they asked me to stay back. Uh, I was told that the, so this is at 6.30 a.m. that I was held back from going out into the field, um, that I was going to have a meeting with HR and the executive staff at 9.45 a.m., and uh, it would be having to do with the conversation that we had the, um, the prior week uh, and the disciplinary action that ensued. And they couldn't talk to me about anything more. Uh, no, all of the leadership staff was kind of told to not say a word to me uh, until that meeting actually did occur. So I reached out to my union representatives, uh, my trusted colleagues in the grassroots orga organizations, and everyone was very confused about the situation. Um, but it turned out, you know, the meeting, I did uh, try to evoke my Weingarten rights as a union-represented employee. Uh, I asked for representation, and it got to the point where I verbally expressed that to all the leadership staff and also put it in writing, uh, but they proceeded and said that they just needed to give me some information. It was not an investigatory meeting or interview. Um, they just had information to give me. They brought me up to one of the head executive offices, and <laughs> the entire uh, head of the HR department uh, two of the executive staff and the heads of the staff of access and engagement were all in the room and they just told me very plainly because I was still in my probationary period, um, they didn't think it was a good fit and my, um, my position was being terminated at that, at that point. Um, and at that point they proceeded to uh, take away all of my work issued phones, logs, uh, tablet, information, all of my client files, all of their information, all the reports that I had made, all of the policy proposals that I had written on my personal computer and tablet, like everything that connected me to the people who I love and had been working with was taken away and then I was escorted out of the building. Uh, it, it felt like I was a common criminal. It was really, really devastating. Um, and so, so they yeah. did this without so, any union rep there 
No, and they didn't. Ha they did not have to because I am in a probationary period. Initially, the first contract that we signed uh, in our employee handbook said six months, and that was what I was trained on initially. But there was an updated employee handbook that was signed later that moved that up to 365 days a year. So. How does that apply to you if it was released after you started and it wasn't something that you would sign? They had us re-sign it. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was, actually, that, that was actually supposed to take effect as soon as we were unionized. Gotcha. So that was, that was something that was in effect. But there was no reason for me to lose my job. There was no, like, prior warnings. Like, yeah. there were no job discrepancies. There was no, like, misperformance on my end. Uh, the amount of people that my team was able to house while I was in my position there, um, like I said, far surpassed a lot of the other teams out there. So th this whole story kind of ends in a really weird way, but we've kind of found a way where we think we can uh, produce something better out of this and sort of by creating a new model where we're looking at getting this organizing funded because if the you know county and the city aren't going to pay for someone like you to organize the people in Echo Park to advocate for their rights, we're operating, and by we, I mean Power and Ground Game, we're operating on the theory that the community will fund that and that perhaps institutional funders would also be interested in funding that. So I want to, instead of uh, looking at the, the story that's happened, I kind of want you to look ahead at what kind of possibilities we can open up if we do kind of like pull off this ability to get this work funded. So I, the work is already in effect and uh, the funding, you know, whether or not it happens, I hope that it does. Like this work is going to continue. I'm going to continue working with our unhoused brothers and sisters on the ground because this is such a dynamic and amazing group um, and they make the job really easily. But ultimately, they are going to um, want to start going out and training and organizing other encampments of um, unhoused brothers and sisters on what their rights are, um, what they should be allowed to do, and really start lobbying and pushing our uh, elected officials in respective districts and uh, different places um, for them to have a seat at the table because at the heart of all of this is the people who are impacted by homelessness. The people who are out on the streets need to be at the center of this narrative. So uh, continue to do, continuing to do daily active outreach is going to be something that I continue to do. But the big piece of this is helping uh, unhoused residents organize and start lobbying and start writing legislation and presenting it and really become a part of the narrative of the solution of ending homelessness in Los Angeles. Like that's the piece that's been missing for so long. We have people at the top sitting in their cushy offices mm -hmm. uh, that don't take a, a step outside and actually have a conversation with our unhoused brothers and sisters for years uh, trying to dictate how you know shelter should be run, how bridge housing should work um, and you know, try to meet the needs of the people without actually knowing what those needs are. Um, coming up with a an approach based on actual stories and the requests from our unhoused brothers and sisters is the way to go. So that that's our goal as of now. We're really pushing for the National Homes Guarantee, um, which is something that I, I feel like we can link to because that's a little bit much to get in, in, into right now. Yeah, we, I mean, we've talked about the, the Homes Guarantee on this. So the, the point here is that like we're, we're pushing this fundraiser now that's going to be coming up. We're going to be pushing this uh, on the Ground Game Socials and everything else for the, you know, months to come. And so the, I think the point here is that we want to talk about like what the funding would enable us to do in terms of implementing that vision of helping to do that kind of organizing amongst these folks and spreading the experience, the learned experience and lived experience of the folks at the Echo Park encampment to other unhoused communities around the city.
Mm-hmm. So this is bottom-up grassroots organizing of the directly affected communities to help change the, the narrative about what is working and what is not working and refocusing the efforts that the city and the county are spending uh, to you know, actually provide the kind of services that people need and that people are looking to get and help to do the things that are necessary to get folks into an actual you know, safe, protected living environment without having to you know, go through the, the tried and failed mechanisms that the county and the city have been pushing for so long because we, we keep seeing the resounding failures of their system and their approach, the lack of any kind of cohesive uh, strategy from the city or the county in terms of dealing with this. And I mean, I'm super excited to see how this all works out. I'm really excited to see what it is that you're going to be doing with this organizing work moving forward. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure that that gets funded because uh, you can only do this like full time if this is like a paying job and everyone deserves a living wage. So, yeah. Well, and also it, it, it opens up the possibility of being able to not just do this for one person, but to expand this model of communities funding their own organizers or funding an organizer to help people within their community. So it's not just you paying money to a nonprofit that you don't know to pay staff that you'll never meet, but more being able to actively participate when you don't necessarily have the time to like do this organizing yourself or you don't have the skill sets because we haven't really talked to Ashley's Bonafides, but like she's highly qualified to be doing this work. Um, and so uh, I was hoping as we round this out, uh, Ashley, can you tell people how they can get involved and what they can do to like sort of either directly on the ground get involved or to begin contributing to this kind of work and maybe building this model in their own community? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing to do is to follow uh, a lot of the community organizations and groups that have been uh, supportive and uh, really championing our brothers and sisters in Echo Park Lake. Uh, so that's Streetwatch LA, Ground Game LA, uh, DSA, K-Town for All. Um, start going to meetings. Uh, there, there are meetings that are advocacy groups for um, unhoused brothers and sisters in pretty much every community. Figure out who those entities are. Uh, go out and start meeting those folks in your community because when you meet them, hear their stories and like build that connection, you realize that these are our neighbors. These are truly like our fellow Angelinos that really just need a helping hand and a community and support behind them. So I'd say that's the first step. Um, go out, like just do what you can, you know, in whatever industry that you work in, like people can probably benefit from something that you do. So if you have a skill set that you want to come out and like teach to an encampment, like if you have uh, excess food or, um, you know, clothing resources, just go out, give them out to people because people are really gracious and accepting. Um, and that's, that's the first step. The first step is really just getting to know the community, then start listening to what their needs are, what their expectations are, and what they want to see in the system. And from that, we can really start developing legislation and a plan and a change from listening to their stories, listening to what their needs are. And that's what's going to be this ground up change that we hope to see happen um, and really reconstruct this, um, this model of homeless services in Los Angeles. And if, in case people don't have the time or necessarily, you know, directly applicable skill sets because I, am, I 
we know that everyone has a skill set of something that they can apply to this, and everyone is, of course, welcome in this. But if they don't have the time because of you know family or obligations to their work or whatever, there are gonna we're gonna be including uh, there's an Act Blue uh, donations page that is set up for this purpose. And then we're going to be working together with other organizations to start promoting similar programs. Similar programs. And also there are quite a few um, Amazon wish lists that have things that uh, certain camps and communities have specifically requested, like tents, blankets, um, cooking stoves, uh, just basic survival needs. So you can actually uh, purchase those, have them sent to one of the respective organizations in your community and know that you are contributing, you know, things that people on the streets are actually requesting and needing and they're getting delivered to them in a timely manner. Awesome. And we'll include some of those uh, wish lists in the episode description show notes. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us about this, Ashley. And uh, thank you for being out there and doing the work. Of course. It's my pleasure. It's my passion. And thank you all so much for having me. I appreciate you. We appreciate you. Thank you. So what we're really talking about here is that as a group, what we believe is that through a series of training sessions in organizing, leadership development, and direct action, using data and research, as well as strong communication strategies supporting it, we can build a powerful movement that's going to be led by the unhoused residents to reshape the debate around homelessness in Los Angeles. We need to permanently retire the counterproductive, inhumane enforcement-based models and fully embrace a homes guarantee as the only real solution to the housing and homelessness crisis here in L.A., So the job description for what Ashley has been talking about is tentatively something like this. Active outreach, daily visits to encampments to interface with uh, and serve the unhoused brothers and sisters there. We're talking about things like food and clothing, basic survival items, connecting folks with cell phone carriers, ensuring that everyone has cell phones and battery packs, chargers, all of these kind of things that are absolutely necessary for the day-to-day survival. Um, another aspect of the job description would be developing the demands of the unhoused. This is learning from them. So we're talking about it's facilitating discussions with unhoused folks surrounding all the issues that they face on their day-to-day basis and what they would like to see changed. We're talking about police violence, harassment by LA sanitation, uh, lack of access to public restrooms, no showers, really inadequate shelter system, and just like awful experiences for so many folks in it. Uh, We're talking about gang taxes in terms of enforcement of like uh, criminal elements coming into encampments and, and causing uh, charging taxes for people to be able to live in their tents in these areas because there is uh, no rule of law when it comes to a lot of this stuff. Um, Another aspect would be education and training. We're talking about educating our unhoused brothers and sisters in terms of their rights, talking to them about housing policy in Los Angeles and local governance in general. This is all in preparation of beginning to take their experiences and their demands to City Hall and making sure that the folks who are making the decisions about how legislation works in the city are that those folks are listening to the unhoused population and getting their facts from the streets, from the ground level, and actually understanding what the root of this problem is and the kind of steps that will actually take meaningful, make meaningful progress in addressing these problems. Uh, another aspect of this is going to be skill, sh- skill sharing and leadership development. We're going to be talking about partnering with local colleges, churches, experts in certain trades, yoga, art, 
etc. This is about beginning to give our unhoused brothers and sisters the opportunity to focus on things that are so much more than just the barest survival on the streets, helping them to realize that there really is a future out there for them and that not all hope is lost. Uh, and the ultimate goal here is to empower our unhoused population to affect policy and legislative changes that make their lives better. And the ultimate goal here is to empower our unhoused population to affect policy and legislative changes that make life better for every homeless Angelino. So that went a All little right. bit longer than like I thought it was going to, but it was totally, <laughs> totally worth it. Um, the the amount yes. of information we just dumped on y'all, like go back and listen to it again because there was so much there and there are so many things that have gone so wrong in such a short period of time uh, as this crisis has escalated. Uh, but that being said, we're going to move in towards the end of the show now. Uh, the first thing that I want to rep for you all, and we, we talked about this up at the, at the top, uh, Means TV is basically a worker-owned, uh, crowd-funded alternative to YouTube, to Netflix, to Amazon Prime, to any of the places that you consume media. Hulu. Uh, and they've done some <laughs> yep. really good work with folks that we work with regularly. Like, No Olympics has been on there a couple of times. Uh, I, I have this weird feeling we're probably going to be seeing some ground game type stuff ca- content uh, popping up on Means TV. <laughs> in the future like we have nothing in writing but just you know i i could definitely see that happening especially since like the no olympics folks are like helping us produce media content now but if you yeah. want to get in on that uh, and i suggest you do i'm a subscriber i've been a subscriber for a while and if you subscribe now you can go ahead and buy yourself a t-shirt uh you can also get in with the street fight radio crowd because they're one of the the first shows Woo-hoo. on means tv but uh point your browsers on the internet superhighway over or the sorry So point your browser on the information superhighway over to means.tv. They'll be launching on February 26th, which is in four days from the day you're listening to this because we're putting this up online on the 22nd. Uh, But starting next week, uh, we are actually starting an effing media revolution, and we hope you join us. Uh, Tell your friends, tell your family, steal their debit cards, make them subscribers without their knowledge. (laughs) Maybe don't. Maybe don't take everything I say on this podcast completely seriously. But get excited about this because we have to be building these innovative solutions. Like the the funding model we're talking about with Ashley, the community organizer, like community funded organizer models that we're helping develop. We know that the powers that be, we know that the institutions, both governmental and private, that currently control our economy are not going to provide the solutions we need. We protect us. In order for us to protect us, we have to build alternative institutions free of all the bullshit that have gotten us into these problems. We are now doing that. We are reaching a critical mass where we can actually succeed and do this. And as the broader economy begins to fail and strain under the failureship of like macroeconomic policies that were never meant to keep people out of poverty or to keep the rest of us enfranchised, we have an opportunity to fill that vacuum with actual revolutionary content and revolutionary projects. I really 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 cannot stress enough how important it is that we keep building these and not just like means tv you i know this kind of stuff is happening all across the country and all across the world we can pull together you know all of us throwing in a dollar or a two is way more powerful than youtube or google being able to throw a billion dollars around at a time we can outlast them and we don't have investors that we have to answer to we answer to each other and we can do this right And if you want to get involved in something like this right here in LA, Ground Game is putting together a video production co-op and we would love to have you be a part of it. Like we know that there is a massive talent pool of underutilized and underappreciated folks working in the film and TV industries right now. 
and we want to help you know, create a, a worker co-op model here to do exactly the same kind of stuff and, you know, get people's vision documented out onto the internets and onto film and everything else and just unleash the creative potential that we know is locked up inside of all of these storytellers and creatives who have not had an opportunity because capital rules everything around us and it sucks. So, Come on out, say hi, jump into one of these meetings, and yeah, it's 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 awesome. So, other things that are going to be going on in the next couple of weeks, we've got, of course, the weekly vigil for Black Lives Matter happening on Wednesday downtown at 211 West Temple. As always, the vigil starts at four, runs until six. It is an amazing opportunity to come and you know save, share the space, and and hold that space for grieving families of the victims of state violence. Uh, incredibly powerful thing to be a part of. I highly recommend it to everybody. Um, we also, of course, have the Los Angeles Tenants Unit it has a number of meetings coming up in the next week. They've got their Hollywood local coming up on the 24th. Uh, they've also got their their North. What? Okay. They've got their Hollywood local meeting happening up on the 24th. They also have their Northeast local meeting happening on the 26th. They've got the North Hollywood uh, East Side and South LA locals all happening on the 27th. And there's going to be a lot of Latu stuff coming up in the future, I am sure. Uh, I have heard some grumblings of some uh, upcoming actions, and we'll talk more about them as we hear. Uh, and of course, on Thursdays, as always, from 7.30 until 9-ish, we have our weekly ground game meetings at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard. We would love to have you all come out and be a part of those meetings. Uh, we had a couple more new members show up last week. Uh, well, that was last night, actually. Uh, <laughs> And it was great to welcome them in. And we're doing a bunch of amazing stuff. Keep your eyes peeled. We've got, you know, a website revamp coming up and all these other things. And we'll announce all that on the socials as it happens. So as always, if you all have any events that you want us to take part in, publicize or just be made aware of, send us a message. You can reach us through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or by email over at podcast at groundgamela.org. This podcast and every Ground Game podcast is a production of Knock.LA. Support our work over on Patreon at patreon.com slash knock underscore LA. Check the description for sources, links to actions, and social media links. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, this has been a f depressing but also uplifting and just like kind of a wild roller coaster episode for me. So uh, thanks for sticking with us. Yeah, it's, it's uh, been a long you, one, Bushido. but worth it. Yeah, absolutely.
Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. 